Another dispensational danger is the downgrading of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels because it was given before the cross, claiming that it's Old Covenant teaching that doesn't apply to us. So if they don't like something, Jesus said, they dismiss it. But Jesus was not just fulfilling the Old Covenant in his life and teaching, he was also founding the New Covenant. His teaching is foundational for the New Covenant and the Apostles later built upon it in their teaching. This is proved by the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, where Jesus commands the church to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He clearly says that these instructions apply to all believers for the whole of the church age. He commanded us to teach obedience to all his teachings in the Gospels. Thus the teaching of Christ is of great importance and is the foundational teaching for the new covenant in the church age. Thus the Lord's Prayer is a New Testament prayer. The Sermon of the Mount does apply to us today and the Jubilee Gospel that Jesus preached is very relevant to our understanding of the Gospel. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5.19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven and whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven when he says these commandments he's talking about the commandments of Jesus that he was giving them right then in the sermon and so he says we are to keep them and not annul them he finished the sermon on the mount by saying in Matthew 7:24, everyone who hears these words of mind, he says, and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Again, he's claiming that his words are foundational for us and that we need to build our lives upon them. In John 14 to 17, he gave the foundational teaching for the operation of the new covenant through the Holy Spirit, saying in John 14:25 that when the Spirit comes, he will bring all that I said to you back to your remembrance. He wanted them to record his own teaching, for it was foundational for the church age. He also said that the Spirit would lead the apostles into further truth, and that built on that foundation. That's in John 16:13. He said, and the Holy Spirit will lead you into more truth, and he will show you things to come. This teaching is found in Acts, the epistles, and the book of Revelation. So the apostles built their teaching upon the teaching of Jesus. In summary, Jesus not only came to fulfill the Old Covenant, but he also came to lay the foundations of the New Covenant. The next key to prophecy is understanding a defining prophetic issue that separates the mainstreams of interpreting Bible prophecy, which we call the Millennial Issue. The Bible says that all history is heading towards a climactic golden age of a thousand years, according to Revelation 20, called the Millennium. It will be a time of righteousness, prosperity and peace under one world ruler, Jesus Christ. Mankind has always held a deep hope for such an age, but foolish man thinks he can establish it himself. From Nimrod at the Tower of Babel to conquerors like Napoleon and Hitler, men have tried to establish worldwide empires that would last a thousand years. The problem is that all these rulers were sinners and so were unqualified to rule. It always ends as tyranny. Throughout history, the forces of darkness are in conflict with the kingdom of God. Both want to establish their dominion on the earth.
Satan's program is to set up a one-world government and religion and put his man, the Antichrist, in charge, thus gaining total control over the world. But God is in control. He foiled this at Babel and he will foil it again at Armageddon. History is moving towards a great climax when Satan's kingdom reaches its fullest outward form in the Great Tribulation and God moves to judge and destroy it uh, in time before all mankind is destroyed. Then God will establish his king and his kingdom on earth when Christ comes again. So there is a coming world conqueror and ruler, King Jesus. He will establish a literal kingdom of peace on earth. Only the Lord is able and worthy to rule over the kingdoms of this earth. The consistent vision of all the Old Testament prophets was that the Messiah, the son of David, would come in power to establish a literal kingdom of God on earth. He would reign from Jerusalem over the nations with a rod of iron. This messianic kingdom is the climax of Old Testament prophecy. Even when the prophets rebuked Israel for sinning, they would always finish with this vision of a glorious future kingdom. Isaiah 2, verse 2 to 4 is one example. It says, It will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now this has not been fulfilled, no matter how much you spiritualize it. It's talking about world peace. The United Nations claims this scripture for their vision, but it belongs to a future dispensation. It's not true about the time that we're living in. But it will literally come to pass when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, returns and establishes his kingdom. Look now at Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, the government of the earth, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or literally the source of everlasting life, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David. That's an earthly throne. And over the kingdom of David, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Right now, Jesus is not sitting on the earthly throne of David in Jerusalem. He's sitting on his Father's throne in heaven. But one day, when Jesus returns, he will sit on the throne of the earth, the throne of David, and rule the earth from Jerusalem. That's what this prophecy literally tells us. You have to decide whether you take it literally or not. The church world is so used to spiritualizing these prophecies that we're in danger of missing the whole point of what they're actually saying. The Old Testament prophets believed their prophecies would literally come to pass. This golden age of the Messiah was the expectation of Israel in Jesus' time, and of the early church, and of the Orthodox Jews today. For the prophets, it was the climax of history, when all the promises of God's unconditional covenant with Abraham would be literally and completely fulfilled. These promises were threefold, and were expanded in three covenants. 
Firstly, the promise of blessing, that is salvation, which is fulfilled through the new covenant, which provides the new birth and every spiritual blessing in abundance. That was prophesied in Jeremiah 31. Secondly, the promise of nationhood and land to Israel through the land covenant. That's in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And in that, God promised that Israel would enjoy full possession of her land. Thirdly, the promise of a kingdom, of a throne, and a king through the Davidic covenant. God promised to David that he would have a son who would reign as king over Israel and rule the nations from David's throne in Jerusalem until the end of time. And all of these covenants will be fulfilled in the millennium. All the information in the Old Testament on this kingdom meant it wasn't necessary for the New Testament to add much. The only missing piece of information was how long this kingdom age would last. And so the New Testament tells us that it will be for a thousand years. That's in Revelation 20. And that's why that another name for this messianic kingdom is the millennium. Although the New Testament does not contain as much material on this messianic kingdom as the old, it still has sufficient scriptures to clearly reaffirm that God has not changed his mind. God has not cancelled the hope of the Jewish prophets, but rather it confirms that their prophecies will still be fulfilled literally. For example, at Jesus' conception, Mary is told this by the angel in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and name him Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is a clear reference to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in the Messianic kingdom. Jesus has not yet occupied the throne of David in Jerusalem, but he will when he comes again. Then in Matthew 19:28, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus was speaking of the messianic kingdom when the earth will be regenerated and nature will be made new. He assumes that what the prophets had predicted was correct. He confirms that Israel will still exist at that time and that the twelve apostles will actually sit on thrones over the twelve tribes. He confirms the hope of Israel in a literal messianic kingdom. Another example describes one time when Jesus had appeared to the apostles after his resurrection. In Acts 1.6 it says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Clearly, they still believed in the messianic kingdom. The fact that they asked him this question shows that Jesus, in his teaching to them, never gave them any clue that this concept of an earthly messianic kingdom should not be taken literally. They still expected this kingdom. And their question was simply about timing. They asked, will you do it now or at a later time? They knew that the Messiah will come and establish this kingdom. Since he was the Messiah risen from the dead, it must have seemed like it was the right moment for him to establish that kingdom. Jesus answered them in Acts 1, 7 and 8, saying, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
In other words, God has fixed the time for the messianic kingdom to be established, but it isn't that time right now. Instead of preparing them for the messianic kingdom, he prepared them for the church age. But he never said to them, don't you know that the Jewish prophets aren't to be taken literally? I'll now bring the kingdom in through the church. His assumption is that the messianic kingdom will come to pass at a time known to the Father. Acts 3, 20 and 21 also confirms this messianic kingdom will be established when Jesus returns. Peter said to Israel that they should repent, because if they did, he would send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, for, for Israel, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration or restitution of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now the fall of man brought the curse on the earth. The Bible predicts that the Messiah will come and restore all things to their original state of blessing. Thus the times of restoration of all things that Peter was talking about here must be talking about the millennium. This is proven by Peter's observation that every prophet spoke of these times of restoration. It's a fact that all the prophets spoke of the coming messianic kingdom. So here, Peter affirms that when Jesus returns from heaven, he will bring in the time of restoration of all things by establishing his kingdom on the earth. Then, Revelation 19 describes Jesus' return in power and glory, followed by him establishing his messianic kingdom on earth in Revelation 20, which is a clear confirmation of the Old Testament revelation. One aspect of literal interpretation is asking how the original hearers would have understood the words. Therefore, there are other times when Jesus mentioned the kingdom of God, which his Jewish hearers would have understood as referring to the messianic kingdom. For example, the ultimate answer to the prayer in Matthew 6.10, Thy kingdom come, is the establishment of the messianic kingdom. When Jesus preached, the kingdom of God is at hand, as well as the application to individual salvation, this would have been understood as the offer of the messianic kingdom to the nation of Israel. Had Israel received him as king, he could have established his kingdom straight away after his resurrection. But because they rejected him, this messianic kingdom was postponed and given to another generation. After telling a parable about his rejection by the leaders of Israel, Jesus said in Matthew 21:43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, from that generation, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Likewise, the disciples would have understood that Jesus was talking about the Messianic kingdom in Matthew 25, 31-34. Let's read that. But when the Son of Man comes to the earth in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, that's on the earth, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now he's speaking about the messianic kingdom. What we believe about the millennium governs our whole viewpoint of prophecy. We'll now look at the three main viewpoints, and you'll be in one of these main prophetic camps. You can know which basic prophetic view a person has by his position on this issue. The first position is premillennialism. 
Pre means before. So premillennialism says that the second coming of Christ comes before the millennium. In other words, Christ will personally establish the promised kingdom on earth at his second coming, fulfilling the vision of the Old Testament prophets. He will reign as king of kings over this earthly messianic kingdom for a thousand years before time moves into eternity. This was the view of the early church for the first three centuries. This is what I believe, simply because it comes from taking prophecy literally. In fact, all the camps agree that if you take prophecy literally, then you will be premillennial. The clearest way to see this is in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, we see the return of Christ. Then in Revelation 20, verse 1 to 6, we see him reign for a thousand years. Taking it in its plain meaning, Jesus returns to earth and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years, and that's the millennium. So one immediate consequence of the literal interpretation of prophecy is premillennialism. If you're not premillennial, then you don't take prophecy literally. You might be shocked to know that because of developments in church history, most Christians do not take prophecy literally, so they belong to one of the other two camps. Now the second view is amillennialism, which became the dominant view in church history. A is the Greek for no. So this says that there will be no millennium, no literal thousand-year messianic kingdom on earth. It says that when Christ came, he brought in the church age, so that's how God fulfilled the prophecies, spiritually, through the church rather than literally, through Israel. Thus these prophecies are all to be interpreted as symbolic of Christ's spiritual rule through the church. The thousand years of Revelation 20 is just picture language for the church age. They believe that one day Jesus will return and take us to heaven, but he will have no earthly kingdom, and there will be no literal fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. This is considered to be unspiritual and overly literalistic. This view depends on a system of biblical interpretation that allegorizes or spiritualizes all references in the Bible to Christ's reign on the earth and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies to Israel. So it denies the literal meaning of these promises. It was Augustine in the 4th century who promoted this idea. Until then, the church took prophecy literally, but Augustine thought that the idea of a literal rule of Christ for a thousand years on earth was too materialistic and didn't seem very spiritual. Since he was such a dominant theologian, this became the accepted view in the Roman Catholic Church. And even though the Reformation generally stood for returning to the literal reading of the Bible, in the area of Bible prophecy, the Reformers were inconsistent, and they stayed with Augustine. Therefore, this is also the general view in the historic Protestant denominational churches. They interpret the millennium of Revelation 20 as a picture of the church age, with Christ ruling with the church, and Satan having been bound by Christ, although they have to admit he's on a very long leash. Since the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled by the church, according to them, this leaves very little for Israel. The problem with this view is that it spiritualizes the prophecies of the messianic kingdom, explaining them away and denying their literal fulfillment, making God unfaithful to his word and a covenant breaker. The third view is post-millennialism. Post means after. So post-millennialists believe in a literal thousand-year political kingdom of God on earth, but that the second coming of Christ will only come after these thousand years of peace.
In other words, this millennial kingdom will be established by the church, not by Christ directly. The church will conquer the entire earth and bring in this time of peace for a thousand years. And then Jesus will return in response to the church saying, we've conquered the world for you now, Jesus, so now you can come back. In this scenario, the church will restore all things and inaugurate the kingdom without Christ's personal return. We will possess political power in every nation, controlling all aspects of its life so that the world will be Christianized. Thus Jesus will reign through the church for a thousand years, but not be physically present on earth. He will return only after this millennial reign of the church. Nowadays this is called Restorationism, Dominion Theology or Kingdom Now Theology. It reinterprets the Great Commission as a command to disciple nations rather than individuals. That is, to take over their political structures in order to bring the Kingdom of God onto the earth. It's it's an exciting vision, a positive and optimistic vision, but its problem is it's unscriptural and it has to reject the principle of literal interpretation. During times when the political influence of Christianity was growing fast, it's understandable that this view gained support. But since the world wars, it's lost popularity. The biblical view is more balanced. It says that the world is getting darker and it will reach its darkest in the tribulation just before Christ returns as described in the book of Revelation. The Bible says that Jesus alone is able to defeat the forces of darkness and establish his kingdom. This is not a negative view, it's just a realistic view that only Jesus can put this earth right. On the positive side, as the world gets darker, the church will get brighter and will be successful in fulfilling the Great Commission and bringing in a great soul harvest from all the nations. In Revelation 5, at the end of the church age, we see multitudes in heaven saved from every nation. The main danger of the post-millennial view is that it takes the focus off the main purpose of the church, which is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, the salvation of souls through evangelism and discipleship. Instead, it presents us a new vision of trying to attain political power and position, taking over the structures and institutions of the world, which are going to be destroyed anyway by Jesus when he returns. Thus it diverts the main energies of the church away from her main assignment of evangelism into a project that must ultimately fail. Now Christians are meant to be engaged in this world. We need Christians in politics, in law, in the media, in the arts, in IT and in every sphere of life. But our ultimate purpose is to let the light of the gospel shine all the more. For the higher the elevation of a light, the greater its impact and reach. Our God-given purpose for this age is to preach the gospel, to win as many people to Christ as possible, but not to take over the world. Jesus made this clear when he gave us his marching orders at the start of the church age, saying, You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. The literal view is premillennial. From now on, I'm going to assume that we take the Bible in its plain meaning that Jesus will come before the millennium. The other views have to spiritualize prophecy and apply Israel's promises to the church. Just before the Lord's return to establish his kingdom, there's a special period of time called the tribulation. The prophets described it, as does the book of Revelation, in great detail in chapters 6 to 18. 
It's a time when the Lord moves in judgment against the kingdoms of this world, so it is also called the Day of the Lord. The prophets, like Jeremiah in chapter 35 to 7, describe this time as a time of birth pains, and it became known as the birth pains of the Messiah. We saw that Jesus described the coming kingdom as bringing about a regeneration or rebirth in the earth. That was in Matthew 19, 28. And so the coming of this kingdom into the earth is compared to the birth of a baby. The earth is like a pregnant woman about to give birth to a baby. The baby's the kingdom of God. But because of sin and the curse on the earth, just before the baby is born, there are birth pains. After the fall, God told Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that because of sin and the curse on the earth, just before any baby is born, there are birth pains because the presence of sin in the body resists the birth. Likewise, as the kingdom of God starts to forcibly push through into manifestation in the earth in the tribulation, it will set off birth pains in the earth because of the curse in the earth, because of sin in the earth. As the kingdom of God, you see, comes into conflict with the kingdom of darkness ruling this world. And so there will be a final time of birth pains, and then the kingdom of God will be born on the earth. When asked to give the signs of his return, that is, the signs of this birth of the kingdom, Jesus described the birth pains of the tribulation. That's in Matthew 24, verse 7. He said, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs, literally birth pains. Just before the birth of the kingdom, there will be seven years of tremendous birth pains called the tribulation, and we are getting very close to that time. The prophets revealed this tribulation time of birth pains, followed by the coming of the Messiah to bring his kingdom to birth on the earth. And this is perfectly confirmed by the book of Revelation, which describes the tribulation in chapters 6 to 18, then the second coming, in chapter 19, and then the Messianic Kingdom, in chapter 20, and finally, eternity, in chapters 21 and 22. So, to summarize, the overall framework of prophecy is, number one, the first coming of Christ, concluding with his death and resurrection. Then, second, that's followed by the present church age. Then third, the church age will end with a rapture, followed by the tribulation, which is the time of birth pains. Then fourthly, Christ then brings the tribulation to its end by his second coming. And then fifthly follows the messianic kingdom, or the millennium. And then sixthly, after these thousand years, comes the destruction of the universe and the great white throne judgment. And then seventh, finally, there will be a new heaven and earth and the eternal state.